Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we're continuing our journey through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. It's available for you in the ESV translation, which I will use. It's on page 10. There's also a children's version we provide on page 11. We'll be referring to both of those. And boys and girls who stay in the service, you're going to want to keep that page 11 handy. We'll be referring to that a couple times for your benefit. So as we continue through Ecclesiastes, I kind of want to start us out with an English phrase that we use all the time. I can take it or leave it. How about this one? I don't really care. It's whatever. Really, where do you want to go to eat? I don't, I don't care. We don't think it's going to make a difference, right? It's not that important. We don't have a dog in that hunt. That's a phrase. And in today's text, we're going to see that Solomon, if indeed I think Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, that Solomon asked this very question of God himself. Can I take him? Can I leave him? Can I live with or without you? Can we function without God as well as we do with him is the question he wants to ask. So where have we been in this book so far? Well, the question of chapter 1, verse 3 looms large over the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we gain from all our toil under the sun? Slogging it out here with life under the sun. His phrase for living in a broken world. A world that just doesn't work right. A world that's once eaten. A broken world that he says makes everything vanity. A poor English translation of the Hebrew word meaning emptiness, vapor, of no worth. Maybe meaninglessness a little bit in there, not that much. Or what many linguists today have landed on, frustrating. Chapter 1, observe that our striving to matter is frustrated by death itself. Chapter 2, he tried to cover up that frustration by diving into various different lifestyles and ways to live. The biggest, most prominent one being the Hollywood lifestyle. Unlimited resources and no accountability. Just jumping in and indulging any and everything he wanted to do. And at the end, he himself says, it didn't work. It didn't fulfill my heart. It didn't fulfill my thirst for significance. I still felt as if I didn't matter. Nothing gave meaning to life. And thus, at the end of chapter 2, he says it's God himself who brings contentment to his people. Last week at the top of chapter 3, we saw that our longing to matter, that to try so hard to create a sense that we're important, it drives us crazy, the text actually says, because we all die. But we ended at chapter 3, verse 15 last week, where God himself actually goes out and chases down what we give our lives chasing after, joy, contentment. He goes and gets it for us. So having established that it's God who brings joy, he's going to end this chapter by doing another one of his experiments of diving into a different way to live to seeing if it works. Instead of using God, he's going to try to use God's resources to deal with all the junk in the broken world. And then he's going to jump in and say, well, let me abandon all that and try to reject God and see if I can still deal with all this junk on my own. So with that introduction, would you please turn to page 10 or in your own Bibles, your own smartphone apps, Let's look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said, 
in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. All is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. And who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And who can bring him to see what will be after him? And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come before your word yet again, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us and you would reveal ourselves to us as well. That we would see the truth of who we are and that we would see your truth. Lord, we pray that you would show us the various ways in which we seek to fulfill our hearts And then in the end, we would see what you are showing us here, that you can satisfy. Lord, we pray that that would not just be religious verbiage, but that would be the heart cry of our lives, that you fulfill us. So we pray you would open this text up to us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So our theme for today, where we're going to go, what I kind of want to hang our hats on, is this. With God, we can, but without Him, we can't even. So we're going to see here that with God, we see this problem and we have resources to deal. But without him, we see the same problem and we just have futility. So starting out here, I want us in verse 16 through 18 to look at seeing the problem under God. He jumps in with verse 16, sort of in a rant. That word moreover there is kind of like our our English phrase, you know, check it out. Or the English phrase, I mean. Have you noticed how I mean has slipped into our language and usage? Someone will explain something to you, and it's your turn to respond, and you go, well, I mean, and you say something else, right? And you hear it all the time now, and you started saying it yourself, like, when did I start doing that? That's what here, I mean, I I could put the words I mean here at the beginning of verse 16, and it makes much more sense. Let's look at verse 16 together. He says, I mean, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He has just proclaimed this great truth in verse 15 that God seeks out what we have been pursuing, a sense of worth, a sense of significance. And from that high point in frustration, he says, but I mean, look around. He looks around at all the junk in life, especially in the judicial system, the place of justice, and in the religious system, the place of righteousness. And in both, he sees wickedness. Now, if this indeed is King Solomon himself writing this, we have here the three pillars of ancient Hebrew society. We have the monarchy, we have the priesthood, and we have the judiciary, and, he's, and here's one of the three looking and says, y'all are in bad shape. It's not a good place to be. And yet, this is the same person who in verse 12 told us that God empowers us to do good. And yet, in the key places for doing good, he sees wickedness. I appreciate how the Bible is honest about real life. Life is not fair. The good guys do not always win. The worst of humanity is often elevated and even celebrated, isn't it? 
That's frustrating. Are you bothered by life under the sun? You're supposed to be. And why don't things work? Why is there no justice where there should be? Why are those supposed to do the right thing not doing it? The very grammar in the original actually shows his emotions. That little English phrase, even there was, that little phrase, it's not in the original. They added in to make it smooth and better English. Literally, he goes, in the place of justice, wickedness. In the place of righteousness, wickedness. He can't even talk. He's so upset. So how do God's people deal with that frustrating junk that's so intense it has this reaction? They trust God's promises. I know it sounds so religious to say that, but that's exactly what Solomon does here. Look at me at verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter, for every work. This is a confession of faith. Remember at the start of this chapter, right? There is a time and a season for everything. And he believes, he reminds himself of that. It's sort of like a creed he's responding to himself. There will be a time, there will be a season. God will bring in righteousness. God will bring in justice. He's trying to remind himself. See, God's people can trust that God will make things right in the end. That, and that faith and that trust gives us the resources to deal with with the very real wickedness and frustration we, we encounter all around us of, of life in a broken world. And boys and girls, still in the room, did you hear what I just said? Do you have things in your life that bother you? That mean person at school who has the teachers fooled? We all had to deal with that person. Maybe that person at church is just not very nice, especially when the adults aren't around. Those things hurt, don't they? Let's look at your verse 16 and 17. Here's what Pastor Solomon says about this. He says, even though God has a plan, this broken world still has bad judges and mean priests. That really bothers me. But God promised that he will fix all of that junk someday. See, boys and girls, God promises he's going to fix it. God promises that there's a season for everything, and so there must be a season when the junk is undone. And so if someone at church or school is bothering you, you can pray, you can ask God to help you deal with that. And then make sure you tell mom and dad that that, that's happening too, please. And for all of us, God doesn't just give us resources to comfort us, but also if you remember, the mandate from verse 12 still stands, to have joy and to do good See, because God will deal with the wickedness out there one day, someday. His people work against that wickedness today by the application of the gospel to all of life around us, to be his agents to do that. See, verse 16 gives us the problem. Verse 17 gives us the solution. We believe God's redemptive grace and promises. But then verse 18 gives us something we all really, really want as well. He gives us the why. Why is this happening? Let me translate verse 18 for you in very rigid, literal, bad English. It says this, God is proving to them that they may understand to themselves. That very last part of verse 18, God's proving to them that they may understand to themselves. See, God is clarifying to humanity who we really are. Here's how I did it for the boys and girls so we can all understand. Let's look at verse 18 there on page 11. It says, for now... 
God uses the hard things of this broken world to show us that without Him, we are like the animals. Why does God allow wickedness, or why doesn't come around and fix it like right now? So we will see the truth about ourselves, is what Ecclesiastes tells us. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 11, it told us that God had this beautiful plan, but we don't know it, and since we don't know it, we're tempted not to trust Him, to try to control our own lives. So God is saying that instead of controlling your own life and being an image bearer, here, let me show you what you're really like when you do that. When you try to seize control, let me show you what you're like. He's exposing us to ourselves. So supposedly the story is told, I haven't been able to find the actual proof that this happened, but there's lots of people who say it happened. The Times of London sent out in the late 1800s a question to famous authors in the land, inviting them to write a response that they would publish. And the question was this, was what's wrong with the world? And supposedly the great, brilliant Catholic novelist and satirist G.K. Chesterton sent back, Dear Sirs, I am. And that's what's going on here. That's what's happening under God. We see the wickedness out there. And according to Ecclesiastes 18, those of us with the eyes of faith, it should make us look at ourselves and say, I am a child of God. I am redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I am changed by the Holy Spirit. I've been declared both just and righteous before God. And yet, if you look closely, you'll see wickedness. I am a beast. Psalm 73, 22, after ranting about the wicked people out there prospering, the psalmist then recognizes himself in the mirror and says, I am a beast before you. You see, God allows wickedness and frustration to help us see that the problem is not out there. The problem is inside of our hearts. And from that place of humility, we then have the resources to apply the gospel to the wickedness around us without being harsh or judgmental because we see how much we need this grace too, how much God has rescued us, that, or because if it weren't for his grace, we too would be beasts. So that's Solomon's answer to the problem under God. He lives by faith, recognizes who he is, and he walks in trust that God's going to fix it. But he wants to explore other possibilities, really chase down this wisdom under the sun. And so he sets aside his faith. Now, I don't know if this means he actually had a crisis of faith and rejected it all for a little while. I mean, I went, I went through a period of trial in my mid-20s when I would tell people I was an atheist too. So, I mean, I get that. We don't know what's happening. But when it, maybe he's just doing it hypothetically, intellectually. But somehow he's going to set aside all this. And he goes, I've dealt with this problem with reference to what God says. Now let me try to do it with out referencing God whatsoever. And so starting in verse 19, we see the problem under the sun instead of under God. Look at me at verse 19. He says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. So he's diving into the worldview that today we would call secular. No reference to God, This world is all there is, and so humans are no different or better off than the animals. Death comes for us. Death comes for them. We're all the same. Therefore, everything we do is empty. It's impermanent. So we can build great cities. We can send people into space. We can cure diseases. We can invent the internet, but eventually we're going to die. Just like our pet hamster we buried last week or the goldfish we flushed yesterday. Under the sun, there's no difference. 
between humans and animals. We have no advantage. We have no superiority over the animals. I want to do a little class participation. A couple of people actually heard of this last service. Let's see. Anybody ever heard of the Great Ape Project? Anybody? Same guy, I don't count. Okay, so the Great Ape Project is this interesting collection of economists and philosophers and biologists and just average people who their stated purpose, they have many things, but their main stated purpose is they're trying to get the UN Charter on Human Rights amended to grant great apes basic human rights. Now, before you laugh, they're serious, right? I mean, I know I'm, I'm part of me wants to go, don't you remember Sesame Street when you were a kid, you know? One of these is not like the other. Anyway, they want to do that. And they believe very passionately about this. But they're being completely consistent. As Ecclesiastes points out, take God out of the equation and we're no different from the animals. You don't get to claim any superiority. They die, you die. Two of the biggest movers and shakers in this project are the ethicist Peter Singer, who can only be described this way, and this is not pejorative. He would own this and celebrate this description. He's so radical on abortion that he believes infanticide should be legal, even going so far as what can only be called toddler side should be legal, because in his worldview, they have no more value than these apes, and we, we got plenty of them around. Let's protect these great apes. Richard Dawkins admits that his atheism destroys all morality. He admits that up front. He goes, still, it's a moral thing to do to protect these great apes. They're being consistent. Without reference to God, man and beast have the same breath. They both die. What's the big deal? What's the difference? Now, there are biologists today who will point out how silly this is. They would say, you know, these great apes don't treat each other humanely at all. The stronger literally kill the weaker. But in a world without God, in a culture such as ours, There's no basis for saying humans shouldn't be like that. Why shouldn't the weak be destroyed to make way for the strong? Ecclesiastes recognized this problem 3,000 years ago. Philosophers have wrestled with it ever since, especially in the last 200 years. Here's another great example. How many of you have heard the quote from Nietzsche, right? God is dead. There we go, right? Famously out of context quote, Nietzsche is not a friend of Christianity, don't get me wrong, but... He was not celebrating when he said that. He was not rejoicing. He was not gloating. Here is actually what he said. He says it in a story, a novel he wrote. And he says this, The masses say we are equal before God. Before God? But now this God has died. God is dead. We have killed him. See, Nietzsche was looking at European culture that was rejecting God, but still holding on to all the residue of Christianity, things like morality, human rights, a call for justice, all those desires. And he was saying, y'all aren't being honest. You don't have the courage to actually live out this atheism you say you believe. If you're true and strong and powerful enough to to be true to that, you'll get rid of all this other junk as well. Because if God's dead, so's all that. And he's right. And he's echoing Ecclesiastes, which he was very educated. He may have been doing it on purpose. In a culture where God is dead, there is no reason to be kind, to be loving, to work for peace or human flourishing, as people like to say. Instead, you better get to the top of the pile of humanity and be the strongest one around so the other humans don't eat you. Now, maybe you haven't been keeping up with your 19th century German philosophy. Fair enough. 
Here's another one, more recent. Arthur Leff, Yale Law professor, famous for rejecting morality and natural law in his book, Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law. He's making his case for rejecting all this. He says this, quote, as things are now, everything's up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? He's echoing Ecclesiastes. In a world under the sun with no God, we have no reason to have any concept of right and wrong. Any concept of protecting the weak. Any notion that humans are different from animals, as verse 20 and 21 say, they both die, they're both buried, and we don't know whether something special happens to humans and they go up and animals don't. We don't know. See, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here today, and yet you think that starving the poor is bad, if you think that buying and selling other human beings is bad and wrong, you should want the Bible to be true. You should want the God of the Bible to exist because his reality gives us the gravitas to have real human rights. Because we can say, God has created people in his image. And as his image bearers, they deserve worth and dignity, regardless of race, sex, sexual identity, economic status, nationality. They deserve respect and basic human rights because we honor God by honoring those things made in his image. And if you take that away, you have, well, these people are just beasts, and there's a lot of them, and there's too many of them. Why shouldn't we protect animals more than them? That's what Psalm is saying here. He's jumped into this worldview to poke around and shine a light in the corners and see what turns up. And so far, it's a picture of futility. And so as a solution, he offers to us in verse 22, it sounds really familiar. He's done this a couple times, but it has an important twist. Look with me at verse 22. He says, so I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Under the sun, he says, since we know death is coming, but we don't know what happens after that, the only real way to deal with the frustration of life is to just try to be happy now, to recognize that this is your lot. This is all you're going to get. This is your assignment. You better be happy. It's supposed to kind of be an unsatisfying answer. You should get to the end of verse 22 and be like, wait, does 23 make it better? Because it's not good. I didn't, leave, I didn't put it in the bulletin. You don't know. You have to come back next week. Here's how we put it for the boys and girls in their verse 22, if you want to look on page 11. The best thing to do in this broken world is rejoice in our life now. That's all we've got since we don't know what happens after we die. Again, this is one of the things I really appreciate and love about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's so honest. We do this. This is humanity. We cry out for ultimate answers. We don't find any that satisfy. And so we say, well, that hurts too much, so I'm just going to find joy here. I'm going to find pleasure here. I will distract myself from this big longing and just kind of maybe indulge myself here with more money, more power, more better relationships, more sex, more stuff, more vacation. But we can't find satisfaction in any of those things. It doesn't work. See, Ecclesiastes tells us we live in a broken world full of broken people who've created a broken culture that defaults to doubting or ignoring God. And we're shocked when our answer is broken as well. 
See, we all live in that world. This is the water we swim in every day. So whether you've confessed faith in Jesus or not, you will have lifelong battles. Those of you who are united to Christ by faith, hallelujah, you will still battle fear and doubt and ultimate questions. And books like Ecclesiastes help us be honest about that. It's not just you. That's the whisper you hear. Don't, right? when, you, when you doubt something serious, when you have a really significant struggle and, as a Christian, oh, my, other Christians don't do this. It must just be me. Because our enemy, enemy wants to keep you isolated. I'll, I'll just confess to you as a pastor, as one of the two professional Christians, oh, sorry, three professional Christians in the room. About two or three times a month, I wake up and the very first thought that hits my brain is you know deep down there's no God. Why don't you get a real job? Do something meaningful with your life, talky boy. It's harsh, I know, but it happens. It happens so often, I pretty much just memorized an answer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And he does. You see, the Bible promises to us that God's mercies are new every morning because doubters like me need him every day. And you do too. And Ecclesiastes helps us be honest about that. Now, for those of you who've been around church world a while, I know you're a little upset at me. We can talk later because now you've got to talk to your kids about doubt. Right? I know. But can I just tell you based on Ecclesiastes that there is a deeper relationship with Jesus available for you when you're honest about your struggles? See, we need something better than verse 22, which is just a religious-sounding version of carpe diem or YOLO. Okay, and they're both extremely unsatisfying. But most of our neighbors are right here, not thinking about the big questions because it hurts so much. They're just trying to eke out joy in their work. And like, this is my lot. This is, this is all I've got. See, and that's why I promise verse 22 sounds familiar, but notice it's a little different, isn't it? There's a key part missing. The most recent time Solomon gave this solution was in verse 13, where he said, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. And then he says, and this is God's gift to man. See, instead of accepting it's our lot, well, I got to try to find joy somewhere. Let me dig deeper. Instead, God says, no, I can offer you as a gift joy and contentment. Even more, that deep human need to know with the second half of verse 22, if you look there, it says, to see what will be after. We want to know. We want to grasp onto some certainty. That's actually answered by verse 17, the confession of faith that God will bring about one day, someday, a world of justice and righteousness. See, a world under the sun ignores or denies God. It cannot give hope. But submitting in faith and trust to God, living under Him, can open up this avenue of joy and contentment. That's what God wants for his image bearers. He tells us in verse 18 that he's testing humanity, that we might see ourselves as we really are, that we might then turn to him. And for some of you, that verbiage can be a little off-putting. Who is God to test me? How dare he test me? I know, I, I kind of feel it a little too. We're all rebels at heart, right? But you know that in the three accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in three of those four accounts, it tells us that he was sent out by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tested. And he passed. He was tested for himself and for others. 
He proved his mettle. And so Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that Jesus was actually qualified to be our Redeemer by that testing and suffering. And later on, on the cross itself, Jesus became sin for his people. He was cast away from God, and he actually died as one living under the sun instead of under God. God has been there and done this. He hasn't asked you to do anything he hasn't already done. And Jesus did that so he could, be, he could then set free all of us who were under the sun. You see, instead of a resigned quest to eke out joy in a broken world, to just dig harder, find it somewhere, you can instead place your faith and trust in Jesus. You can get out from under the sun and deal with your problems under God. And he will give you the joy your heart craves. He will empower your life now that you live under the sun because actually you're doing it under him. Because with God, we can. Without God, we can't even. Let's pray together. And gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, so often we come to texts like this that seem very simplistic, and so we're prone just to ignore them. Lord, we ask that you would give us the truth about who we are and that we would see the glorious truth of who you are in Jesus and that you would be found by our hearts to be so beautiful that we would cling to Jesus alone for salvation. Lord, we confess we look to so many other things to make ourselves feel better and they, and they often work for a time. But Lord, would you help us to see that ultimately when it comes to the real junk in life, we got nothing if we don't have you. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us once again the beauty of your gospel and that we would cling to Jesus. And we ask this, Lord, in his great name. Amen.